Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Nicholas, thank you for the introduction earlier. Uh, I'm Rob Lustrin. I'm a partner in Seward and Kissel's Capital Markets Group. Uh, it's great to be back in Athens with everyone today, friends, clients. It's, it's always a good time. Thank you. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with our firm, uh, we've been around uh, for well more than a century and have been working with our many clients here in Greece for decades, uh, helping with capital markets, transactions, restructurings, and so many other types of deals. So first, some general observations, and then we'll get to the meat of the panel. Um, there really is a high level of excitement in the United States today in and around the capital markets. Aside from the volatility over the last few days um, and the last few trading sessions, the securities markets have been up very heavily. And I think that we all expect that this will lead to a renewal in interest in shipping um, as the velocity of international trade begins to uh, get more vibrant uh, across, across the markets. Uh, you know, new issue equity offerings remain you know, limited. There's not a lot of IPO activity. The focus still is on technology companies and uh, some of the some of the metrics around shipping companies haven't really caught up yet, so there may be some opportunity there. Uh, much like we discussed last year here at this conference, for shipping companies, deals are getting done, but more on a one-off, one one-at-a-time basis, rather than the more vibrant pace that we saw back between 2007 and even after the financial crisis began. I think through 2010, we really saw... Uh, some activity going on. That being said, uh, the mood on Wall Street, as I said earlier, seems much more positive than where we were when we sat here last year. Money for capital raising transactions is available with investors looking for value in this high market. Um, as for the various shipping sectors, uh, just some quick observations. Uh, tanker companies uh, seem to be facing some muted demand. Uh, from where we sit, and there is little interest uh, in oil services, platform services, and things like that. That's continuing with what's been going on in the offshore industries uh, still remaining uh, distressed. The bright spots appear to be in more specialty areas, such as LNG. And in the U.S. capital markets, consolidation, and we heard a lot about consolidation earlier and in the various panels, consolidation among shipping companies is continuing. Um, such as the recently announced, well, not so recently, but the announced uh, Euronav and Generate merger. And reportedly, consolidation is uh, occurring pretty rapidly in container shipping, uh, primarily in Asia. Uh, dry bulk is, was a bit ahead of the consolidation curve, having had some uh, pretty substantial merger activity a couple of years back, and seems stable with a very hopeful outlook. And ostensibly, having turned a corner, um, we can, let's see if we can light the fire of the capital markets around that. Of course, uh, you know, mine are just observations, so let's hear from this wonderful panel that we have here, uh, the investment bankers. Uh, once again, we have a, a terrific panel of bankers for you, all of who are very active today in the capital markets transactions, both in the U.S. and abroad. So we have with us, and I guess I'll start, I'll go down that way, Eric Schles, Managing Director of Wells Fargo Securities in its Industrials Investment Banking Group, uh, which includes shipping. Uh, to his immediate right, Todd Wilson, uh, Managing Director of Maritime Investment Banking at Jefferies, which is, has been a great friend to the shipping industry 
and, and some of the first IPO activities Jeffries was a part of, including the, the, the Stelmar transaction going way back. Uh, next is uh, Nicholas Duran, a director of corporate finance and a partner at Fernley Securities, again, a company with very rich history uh, in shipping. And to my immediate left, Crystal Volpicelli, managing director in the Global Transportation Group at Citi. And she is also the leader at Citi's U.S. investment banking team for shipping. So if, 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 if this group doesn't know uh, what's going on in the capital markets, nobody does. This is a terrific group. So let's just start off. Maybe I'll start with Eric since uh, he's at the end. I'd like to focus on what's happening in the U.S. capital markets, primarily on the general state of the markets. And the, the age-old question, is the market open to shipping companies? Well, I suppose you can't really talk about uh, the state of the markets without talking about the last few days and how to put it into perspective. And I think that uh, what I would say is that when you look at the absolute numbers of how many points the Dow dropped or the S&P or something of that nature, it looks pretty, it looks pretty dire when you start matching it up to the percentage drops, it's nowhere near as bad as it looks. And so that I think that uh, for many people, this is, uh, the market had gotten ahead of itself since the first of the year. This is a, a bit of a, a way to address that, getting ahead of itself. Uh, interest rates are probably likely to move up, but I think they're moving up because economic activity is up. In fact, remember that a lot of the sell-off was triggered by the fact that uh, wages are up. And if wages are up, people are making more money, they can buy more things. That's probably not so bad from a fundamental standpoint. Does it put a little bit of pressure on interest rates? It certainly could, but I would contend that it's probably better to have pressure put on interest rates by people making more money than by uh, a wholesale exit of the central banks from their, uh, their uh, principal positions without any supporting economic growth. So that I think that in terms of the state of the overall markets, uh, our view at Wells Fargo is that nobody likes this sort of experience over the last week or 10 days, but it, it's, not, it's certainly not the end of the world now. As to the shipping markets, uh, it is interesting to note that in the last 12 months, and I've got a bunch of slides here, if people want to get copies of them, I can get your cards later, but um, really the only, the only sector of shipping that has even close to kept up with the rise of the S&P over the last 12 months is dry bulk. Everything else, including LNG, which is a, seems to be everybody's kind of poster child these days, has not kept up. And so that to what extent, what, what is going to cause people to invest in asset classes that have underperformed over the last period of time? And I think that obviously it's the prospect of the future. And as we look at that, you can go sort of sector by sector. But I think that the markets will open, but they have to be for very liquid stocks, stocks that people can get in and out of very quickly, and for uh, companies where the growth path is visible and achievable. So I think those are the, those are the elements that have to be in place, size 
and visibility and credibility of growth. Thank you, Eric. Uh, Todd, do you have any thoughts on general state of the market? Sure. Um, I, I, I think Eric's points were spot on. Um, I think investors were looking for any excuse to sell for the broader markets. Um, people, people were playing with house money at that point, so any excuse to sell, put your money away in something more, more safe, I think, I think that's part of what we've seen, and I think it's temporary. I think, to Eric's point, there, there are still a lot of positives in the economy, and, and inflation could be good. Higher interest rates could be good if it's driven by people making more money and you know, a synchronized global expansion and it could be great for shipping, right? So the way I was, I, I've thought about the broader markets in the, in, in the past month is people are waiting for an excuse to buy shipping stocks. And, and I think if we start seeing some inflation, we start seeing some, you know, some of the earnings supported by what we all think, I think, is a, is a favorable supply-demand dynamics almost across sectors. Um, I, I think the windows could open a little faster than, than maybe I would have said six months ago. Maybe Krista can, you want to go next and then we can. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I guess I have, I, I agree with what um, my colleagues have set up here, and, and I guess I would add a, a couple of things. I think that um, when you look at the fundamentals in the underlying market, corporate earnings are still going up. And 50% of the S&P have reported their fourth quarter earnings. 77% of them have beaten consensus estimates for what they are. The general outlook as we look at 2018 is that EPS is rising across the street. This is, this is outside of shipping, but in the broader market. And so that underpinning is essentially what is the key driver of the market today. Um, you know, people talk about the market overall being at high levels relative to history, just on a price-to-earnings basis in terms of relative valuation levels. Um, I think that that presents an interesting opportunity for investors in shipping because in that kind of environment, uh, investors start to look at cyclical sectors as a way to earn outsized returns. So that should benefit shipping in our view. Um, the other comment that I would add is, Eric made the comment that dry bulk um, over the last 12 months is the only sector that kept up with the S&P. I think one of the interesting dynamics in shipping today is if you actually go back over a longer period and you start at the beginning of 2015 and you look across the different sectors of shipping and, and where their equity values are today relative to early 2015, Every single sector is down below um, and has lost a lot of equity value since that period of time, despite the S&P being up 30%. And so that today presents a very interesting opportunity for a new investor coming in. Now, from the perspectives of the companies who are listed, there's a cost of capital consideration in terms of do they want to be issuing equity at these levels. But I think that ultimately it all comes down to the fundamentals of each sector and what the outlook is. Um, but we feel good about the potential of many sectors today, and I think to Eric's point, uh, and to Eric's point, uh, and to Eric's investors are really just looking for the right combination of company capital structure size uh, to deploy their capital. Thanks, Krista. Uh, Nick, question for you. You can, I think, expand on what we've been speaking about in the U.S. capital markets, and maybe coming from Fernley's, you might have a good, uh, a good perspective to segue into the international markets, particularly what's going on uh, in Norway. If you have a handle on that, perhaps that would be helpful. Thank you. Um, I would say that uh, maybe even more so than, than in the U.S., the capital markets for shipping in Oslo 
uh, has been very open. Uh, we've seen a lot of activity there over the last 18 months. I would say that in many ways, um, a lot of the value, extremely value-oriented investors came in at the very early stage of the recovery in uh, both dry cargo and, uh, and containers. What we've also seen, which is a view that Fernley has as a house, is that I think now it looks like we're going into sort of synchronized recovery of all the shipping segments. Of course, dry cargo has come further into, into the recovery than containers, but both of those are well on the way. LNG is looking positive. We believe we'll turn the corner on tankers and LPG this year. So we think that from our conversations with investors uh, globally, we believe that uh, there's a very healthy appetite for, um, for shipping. And also in particular, I think one of the reasons why we've seen a lot of deals there is because the hurdle to uh, make a move in the Oslo market, either through an OTC or a Mercury listing, as have been several examples of in the last 18 months, is so much lower than doing an IPO in the US, for example. So, so we've seen that uh, people have come to us uh, keen to move quickly, obviously, uh, doing an NOTC or a Mercury listing in Oslo is substantially cheaper uh, and more cost-efficient than, than doing the same type of exercise in the U.S. through an IPO. Um, and so we just think that's one of the reasons why there's been more activity there. Thank, thanks, Nick. Uh, now, just ex thinking about the recent consolidation that's gone on in the shipping industry, we, we've heard in the past bankers saying that, look, you really need to have a certain amount of size in order to get attention in the capital markets. Of course, there was a time where, I know, a five or six vessel fleet, you know, uh, with, a, with a good basis of a charter cover could, as a use of proceeds, do an IPO and double, triple the size of the fleet uh, and, and do something that was far less than, you know, far less than that magic number, whatever it is, half a billion dollars and up or whatever the number is today. Um, I was just wondering whether the consolidation is a good thing or a bad thing from your point of view as investment bankers uh, and whether you'd like to see more before you think that shipping companies will be able to you know, fully access the capital markets or do the markets really just have to catch up to where we are? You know, that's kind of my question. Rob, I'll take a crack at that. I think that uh, the reason that consolidation is good from certainly from the public market standpoint is that People who buy into a company that is either already public or going public think about growth, and they think about the growth of their investment. And so the possibility, the likelihood of M&A activity, whether as an acquirer or as, or as an acquired entity, is an important element of that. And if you take that away from somebody's view of a stock, you're, you, then it is just pure organic growth that is going to get them there. And I think that when you look at an industry like shipping, which when you think of other transportation modes and how consolidation has occurred in those modes, that's, that, is a very, that can be a very powerful force for shipping. So I would say that consolidation is good for for the equity markets and shipping, and I think that uh, this the increased consolidation that we've seen in the past, uh, in the recent past, hopefully will continue because it, they have been done with industrial logic, and it's an opportunity again for 
what we talked about earlier, size, liquidity, growth, those are all three themes, and, and consolidation helps all of those. I, I mean, I agree. Of course, consolidation is good for investment bankers, but I think it's good for the market as well. Um, and, and I think what, we, what we've seen in shipping over the last several years is, is some companies stuck in a rut and not being able to trade above asset value. Um, and a lot of that is driven by the, the factors Eric mentioned, which is size, liquidity, um, governance, transparency. And so when, when you start seeing mergers, right, I think, I think so all of them are done for different reasons. And, you know, private into public can be an exit strategy for a PE firm. But a public-to-public -public merger, to me, that uh, they're all about providing a more investable company for investors. And, and what do I mean by that? I mean bigger, obviously. Um, and, and, and larger float, um, and something that hopefully doesn't have a, a massive overhang on it, right? So a big sponsor owning half the company that's looking to sell. And so I really think one of the biggest hurdles for investors right now investing in shipping, because there are there is value out there, as Krista mentioned, um, is, is are they investable, right? Can I invest my money in and get it out? Um, are they transparent? Are they governed well? Is there no overhang in the stock, right? So. So I think these corporate mergers are going to help to dilute some of these big stakes that some of these um, sponsors have, as well as, you know, you, you add two companies together, they have, each company has a float, it doubles the float, right? So um, I, I think it makes better companies for the capital markets, uh, puts hopefully a little more attention on shipping and gets investors caring more about shipping investments. Um, okay. Um, I, I would add that I, I, I fully agree. I think consolidation is very good for the publicly listed companies. I think it's a trend that we're seeing in shipping as financial sources have become more constrained over the years, whether that's debt capital or equity capital, having scale helps um, on either side of the equation. But I also think when we're advising companies on mergers, which is half of what we do as an investment banker, it's not just about getting bigger for getting bigger. It's, you know, what do the two companies what can they do together? And you know, one of the challenges in shipping is that in a fragmented sector, um, you may not have as many industrial synergies to combining because you may be able to run a fleet very efficiently uh, if you have very good insights into the market. That said, I think certainly we have seen companies benefit from cost synergies in terms of being able to manage a larger fleet um, across a similar set of resources and commercial synergies, much of which can be achieved through ways such as pooling, uh, and many companies have done that successfully. But you've seen it happen in the liner industry, um, and I do think you know you're, you're seeing a start to it in the tanker industry. And our view is that it that it will continue. I think that um, one very important point which Krista raised is, and one of the reasons why we think um, uh, we'll see more consolidation going forward not only amongst the public, but also with some of the private companies, is that um, the decreasing access to debt um, for both private and smaller public ship owners um, is, is becoming a big problem or a bigger problem. And only by having liquidity and scale uh, can you have the optimal access to, to uh, debt capital whether it's through bonds or uh, debt from the traditional lenders. And we think we're going to see more of that going forward, which is, you know, the evidence, uh, the evidence is in the growth of uh, alternative, uh, the growth in alternative finance 
you know, private owners that uh, are struggling to get uh, to erase debt from, from traditional lenders and are instead, you know, looking to hybrid capital. That's just uh, um, evidence of what's to come, we believe. Okay, thank you. You know, I'm thinking about what's the best way to go public. We have many folks in the room here who may have a family fleet. They may have an extensive fleet. They may have a, a smaller fleet. I mean, obviously, a, uh, you know, a one or two vessel situation might not be the ideal candidate uh, to bring public. Perhaps maybe that's a good candidate for a more of a, you know, gobble, you know, get gobbled up or something like that. But just in terms of someone that may have a substantial family fleet and wants to start thinking about what they need to do to prepare to do an IPO and how to structure that, what would your recommendations be? And uh, I don't know who would like to pick that up and start. Nick? Yeah, I think one thing which is very important today, given that you have a lot of fairly large good shipping companies that are most of the time trading below NAV, uh, if you're going to go to the market and list your fleet, you need to differentiate yourself from what's already out there. Either that or you're going to get hit on pricing and you need to offer a substantial discount to what's already out there. So we think that, uh, you know, Presenting a story which is different from, from what's already available uh, is key to doing that. And you know, we've seen that the, uh, the IPO market in the U.S. has been fairly closed to, uh, to shipping, uh, whereas things like the NOTC and also have been extremely open. I mean, board drilling raised close to $2 billion in the space of uh, you know, six, seven months uh, in an OTC uh, unregulated platform. I think that just tells you something about how going forward we'll probably see more people to attempt to go that route rather than the traditional US IPO. Well, that, I, I, I grant you that's been going on for uh, yeah, a little true. bit, um, but maybe we have a, an alternative view. So I think that, I think it's important to think about why you're going public. And if, if you're going public because you really believe that you've got a growth opportunity that is only gonna be uh, fulfilled by exterior capital, then that starts you down a certain path. And we've, you heard some private equity people earlier, uh, going public is part of that process. And if you have a large fleet, if you can achieve the liquidity that the, in your stock that we've talked about, and you have a plan says a very understandable and achievable plan that says here's how we're going to go grow that's that's a great ipo story um, what is a more challenging ipo story is well we're kind of going to do what the market does and um, we want to view this as a way of uh, mitigating the risk that we as owners have in this platform that that is more challenging that's when you that's when you fall into a, a more undifferentiated bucket I would say yeah, but I guess my question really is is it a fait accompli that you have to get that private money in first no. grow to a certain level in order to you know to get there or you know if you have that story and you have or, you know whatever the growth story is is that is that is that marketable today? And if not today, do we expect, what's our expectation? I mean, I would think that the expectation is that there will come a point in time when that, 
you know that will be uh, that will be something very viable and attractive. Well, I'll just I'll just throw out my opinion because this is pure speculation. But the market has become has become more and more a. If you go back 20 years, there was such a thing as a 50 million dollar IPO, and people people said that's just fine. Um, the market is not there anymore. It's it, the the domination of large institutions, which the large institutions 20 years ago are multiples of the size that they were. So I think that if you, if you have a family company and if your fleet is of a size that you can address that, that's fine. But I think that, um, I think the, uh, my personal view is that the four or five ship fleet with a great vision of how to exploit the market is still going to have a tough time getting it done. It's got to be, Nick, I agree with Nicholas 100% that differentiation is important, but I think you have to be realistic and say four or five vessels, at least in my opinion, Rob, for the foreseeable future, that, that that's not going to work. Not, others may have other views, but. I, I, yeah, Christy, you I would add future. that I, I think I agree <laughs> with, with Eric's views, and I think it's also you know, Eric was talking about the path of asking yourself, why are you going public and, and what is this doing for the company? I think we absolutely think as much about, you know, what are you doing day one for the IPO? How will you be valued? How, how will you be differentiated from the other opportunities that are out there? Because it's ultimately a relative valuation exercise. But ultimately, your IPO is setting the stage for your success or lack of success as a public company. So it does no good. You can, you can go prepare to go public, and there may be a window, and this, it might be just the perfect point in time where stars have aligned, the sector backdrop is, is strong, and, and you get something public. But if you get something public in a window that's opportunistic and it's not set up for the long-term success, whether that's capital structure, whether that's size, um, over the long term, the valuation of that company will reflect it. And if you have a stock that is going to consistently trade at a discount to NAV because it's smaller than the rest or doesn't benchmark the rest or doesn't benchmark the rest or is favorably, then what good is it being public because you don't have efficient access to that capital going forward? So in our minds, it's, you know, what does the IPO look like? Uh, but what do we think that this company looks like once it is public? And will this be an efficient source of capital for the company and its investors going forward? And, and that's a dynamic discussion that, you know, we all have with, with companies as we're assessing um, this prospect. Todd, maybe you can have some thoughts on that and also address, you can maybe address the growth versus yield uh, aspect of it yeah, as well. Yeah, I'll touch on that se secondarily. but. The, the one thing we haven't talked about yet as far as, you know, if you're a family and you're considering going public, you have to get a read on the investors, right? So, so right now, investors, investors that have invested in a shipping IPO in the last five years have not made money. Um, and so until you see some, you know, someone making money in their shipping investments, and now dry bulk is up over the last 12 months, right? So if you, if you timed it perfectly, you made money in the dry bulk sector, and there are other points, I'm not saying Nobody has made money investing in shipping, but in the IPO space, nobody has made money investing in shipping in a while, unless, again, they timed it absolutely perfectly. So you have to consider, no matter how differentiated you are, if investors are not making money in their shipping investments, it's still not a good time to go public, right? You're still going to be dragged down by the overall shipping sector. And so 
I think you have to see some momentum in earnings, some momentum in the stocks, and and unfortunately, I think it goes across sectors, right? So even if you have the best product tanker company in the world, if you know the two or three companies that have exposure to product tankers in the public space are still trading at a discount, you're going to be in trouble. Um, and and so I, I think you have to, you know, take into in, into account what investors want at what point in time as well. Um, as far as growth versus yield, um, it, I mean the yield companies, other than maybe some of the LNG right now, um, and even some of those are, are, are treating at very high yields, making it very hard for them to acquire assets in, and they have too high a cost of capital to, be, to make accretive acquisitions at this point in time. So I'm, I'm not sure the yield story is the one investors want right this second. I, I, I frankly think investors want to see if, if there was a company to go public and if the comps weren't trading at discounts, I think it would be something that has some volatility in it, um, is a real company, again, investable, clear governance, no, no conflicts, um, and, and growth either through acquiring accretive assets or because it's a volatile assets class and the supply dyna demand dynamics look good and, and there's some real upside in, in, in the price. I don't think a yield play right now, it would be priced against the other yield plays, would make sense from a cost of capital perspective. Thank you, Todd. Just switch gears again. Um, I'm, I'd be interested in knowing what each of you feel about the types of transactions for your, you know, your public company clients that you work with. Um, do you feel that convertibles are really still very strong in the secondary, you know, for for uh, in the secondary markets as they're trading? Is that the type of of instrument that you might recommend? to an existing public company, of course, if all of the, you know, metrics are correct for that? Or do you, do you think that more sh straight capital markets debt might start to creep in here? Uh, we haven't seen really a lot of straight, either high-yield debt or straight, you know, corporate-type debt creep in into the playbook in a while. I'm wondering whether we're getting to the point in the cycle where that might make some sense. Yeah, I'd like to comment on that. I think we're seeing... Um, tremendous interest in, uh, in shipping bonds. Traditionally, uh, bonds have not been a, a much explored or used uh, form of uh, funding for, for shipping companies, but we see a lot of investor appetite. Uh, of course, a lot of those uh, bonds, both secured and unsecured, are trying to fill the gap or vacuum that's being left by the banks that are trying to reduce their exposure. And we definitely think that that type of capital is going to play an extremely important role for the listed companies uh, going forward. And we've already started seeing the deals being done, and the appetite has been very strong. Thanks, Todd. Your high yield guys getting itchy? Look, I, th I think there's more investor demand for high yield paper in the shipping sector than there is supply. Um, and, and I think uh, that's primarily owners have options, right? Um, Oslo is an option. You have to be of a certain size to access the U.S. high-yield market. Um, and frankly, I think owners aren't ready to pay the prices and live up to the covenants, get a rating, which may affect their bank relationships. Um, so there are some, I think there are some factors that limit kind of some of the ship owners that will access the high-yield markets. Um, but from an investor perspective, in, in the high-yield space right now, um, yields are at all-time lows. Uh, deals fly off the table, right? It's a very issuer-friendly market, um, and I think shipping would provide 
uh, a, a way to play yield, right? A, a risk return yield, but there aren't, you know, hundreds of shipping companies that would even have the right profile to act, to access the high yield markets. So I think, again, I think you would see more. I think there's more investor demand than there is supply. So I think it's very open for shipping market for a shipping company, but it has to be the right kind of company. Rob, can I just make no, a comment there, please? please? please. Um, so I think that uh, one of the things that uh, Todd's right. I mean, if if you just look at the high yield market as a one shot deal, um, it is it, it, the 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 sort of look through by banks as to gee, I'm I was charging you this on for this uh, money that I lent you, and you went to the high yield market, and it was this much more. There's a risk there, right? Um, but I think that. For, particularly for larger companies, the, it, the high yield market is is a is a slice of capital that it should be that should be considered maybe not necessarily endorsed but should be considered as part of a long term strategy. So if you're just going to do one high yield deal and say that's the end of it, I think I think you go through a lot of pain and suffering to get to do that one deal. The, the attraction of the high yield market is once you've done one, it's very easy to go back thereafter. And you, it's, it's a lot easier than going public, but it's not unlike that, that once you, once you break through that initial piece, it can be a very helpful and dynamic part of your capital structure, particularly getting back to an earlier question that you had, Rob, particularly if acquisitions, you know, substantial acquisitions are going to be part of your ongoing strategy. So I, th I think that um, one thing that we didn't talk about, the term loan B market is very active and one that I think that uh, shipping companies should be thinking about. Uh, the convertible market, the shipping companies have, have had uh, some challenges in the convertible market just because of the, the lack of borrow in the stock. And so it makes it a little more challenging. That's kind of a technical issue. But I do think that, that all of these forms of capital need to be thought about on a long-term basis and not just uh, as one-shot deal. Uh, Krista, perhaps you want to speak a little bit about what uh, folks at City are doing and your expectations uh, as to what, what, you, what you think we'll be seeing. Are convertibles still uh, something that looks like it's going to be a way, a way to get at the equity, so to speak, um, or do you see more debt creeping in at this point? Straight debt. I think the good news is, is right now, all of these markets are very strong, um, and I think it's an issue of what's suitable for the company and the company's size. Um, I do. Th I mean, we just were involved um, placing a, a convertible bond for TK Corporation up at, up at the parent level. Uh, which they were able to upsize and, and price within in the ranges that they were targeting. And it, um, it will serve a good purpose in terms of what they're utilizing the capital for, which is a refinancing event. Um, so I think the convertible markets are strong, but to Eric's point, not every shipping company has a big enough size, right? We talked about size earlier. You have to be a big enough public company to be able to access the convertible bond markets or the high-yield bond markets or the term loan B markets efficiently. Um, but I think you will see a trend as companies get larger. Um, utilizing these markets will help companies diversify their access to capital. 
um, which again just goes back to some of the earlier comments in terms of, of size and scale. But right now, all markets are are open. And one final question, which just comes to mind. Uh, we, we've heard a lot today about technology and changing technology systems, uh, utilizing some financial technology and trying to superimpose that on shipping, uh, things like data utilization and the like. I'm just wondering whether technology, seeing that, especially from a retail investor point of view, it's, it's kind of something that people look for now, uh, being on the cutting edge, uh, is that something that is a necessary element when accessing the capital markets to say that you're on top of the latest shipping technology, or do people really see through that and they're just looking more at the you know risk and return metric? I, I think technology enters into it when uh, there's an, a level of accountability so that um, are you able to anticipate what your business is doing? How are you able to do that? That's how technology enters into it. Um, and I think that, but I think when, and, and the other way technology should enter into it is you should be more profitable. I mean, that's the whole premise of technology. I don't, I think that when all is said and done, people really care about the vision, the growth, the plan. People want to hear about an IT system. I don't hear people ask about the technology system in a shipping company the way I hear them ask about the technology in a logistics company, for example. So I would say that that one of the nice, one of the positive things out of all this is that uh, growth, margins, return, that's really when all is said and done. That's, that is where the equity investors uh, focus is going to be. And to the extent that you have some special technology that enables that, that becomes even better because to Nicholas's earlier point, it becomes a differentiator. Well, we're, we're getting close to the end of our allotted time slot, so if anyone has any questions, I think this would be an opportune time to open it up. And while we have this fine panel sitting here, if anyone has any questions. I have one question. I hope Mr. Nascarius will forgive me for asking it. Oh, please. Because we're going to the next dynamite panel. That's for Nicholas. And the question is the following. If uh, most of the money that has been invested uh, in the OTC market in Norway comes from the, America, from the United States. So my question is, why would American investors decide to invest in an OTC listing that is illiquid and not support an IPO in the U.S. that would be highly liquid and highly tradable right away? That's a very good question. I think you need to look at the composition of the uh, investors that have been active in the deals that have been done in the Norwegian OTC. Um, of course, we've seen primarily a lot of the smaller to medium-sized hedge funds. We've seen a lot of family offices and high net worth professional shipping investors. Um, I think all of those, what they have in common is they see that, you know, the asset play opportunities that have come to the Norwegian and LTC market have never been part of the sort of US IPO domain because it's not, it, it's too costly and it, your time to market is too long to be able to do that in the US, in our opinion. And so we think that, you know, if you take an example like Songebulk, which was done in 2016, if I'm not mistaken, the first equity raise, you know, everyone had seen the dry cargo rates just start to recover 
and investors were kind of asking how do we put money to work in a vehicle with clean sheets that has no legacy issues. And I think the Norwegian NLTC platform was a perfect catalyst or enabler for that. Exactly. My question is uh, also directed to Nicolas, and it relates to the NOTC. We've worked with several of our clients, which were Greek shipping companies, smaller companies, and they gradually raised two or three times equity on the NOTC, and then they listed uh, New York or NASDAQ. The question is, uh, I, I fully agree uh, that a, a five-vessel company would not be appropriate for an IPO in the States, but we've seen five-vessel companies grow and thrive in an NOTC offering with several follow-on offerings. Within the next, let's say, six or 12 months, would there be a particular field of shipping uh, sector that you would see might be uh, the appetite of the type of investors you uh, solicit would, uh, would actually uh, like? I mean, you mentioned about differentiating yourself, but it's not quite clear. And maybe a bit being a bit more specific, what would be in three bullet points what you would want to see in a Greek shipping company, whether family or not, that would be a good candidate for an NOTC listing? Well, as one of the previous panelists pointed out, I think there's a lot of expertise, operational expertise in the Greek shipping community. That's one important thing that, that I think investors would look for in, in, in the company. Um, secondly, I think in terms of differentiation, 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 if you look at the list of listed companies, you look at who has succeeded with the NO, on raising money on the NOTC in the last 18 months, it's there are a lot of companies that are coming to the market that don't have a natural peer. So, for example, MPC, you, know, you didn't really have any feeder specialist container ship companies that were listed and that had zero legacy issues. You know, a lot of the listed container companies were either in larger segments or had a very mixed fleet. So I think keeping that in mind, you know, something in the LPG space, which is not VLGC, because there's plenty of peers there, um, or comparables there, um, maybe looking at something uh, in the uh, chemical tanker market. Uh, of course, you have Stolten Oddfield, but you know that they kind of live their own life in a way. So there's plenty of other uh, room to to maneuver in in the in the chemical space. So I'd probably say those two off the top of my mind. Uh, we have, we have some more hands back here. Thank you. Well, it's up to up to you, Nick. Well, the cost is, is, I mean, it's almost immaterial compared to the, to, to a US IPO, but you have to keep in mind that the, you know, being on the NOTC in Norway cannot be a permanent solution. It's a stepping stone to something else, and as you evolve into a full listing in Oslo or a full listing in the US, the costs will follow. So you need to have a, a plan of how to uh, you know, unless you're planning to get big at some stage, there's no point in even doing the OTC because, as Krista pointed out earlier on, being public just for being public, if you don't have the scale uh, and the liquidity so that you get the pricing, it's not a tool that you need. 
or can use. Thank you very much for listening. Oh, we have one, one more quick question. <coughs> Well, does, any, does anyone feel the U.S. capital markets can assist the Greeks in building national pride? Well, I, I guess I would say um, to Nicholas's credit at Capital Link, I think Capital Link has done a very good job at um, bringing Greek shipping companies to the international investor community through events like this and events in New York. Um, and, you know, if you look across the number of companies that are listed, um, quite a few of them are, are based here in Greece. So I, I would say that uh, Greek shipping companies are already a very important part of uh, the international investor base. Thank you all. Thank you.